Welcome to the Molding Private Practice Show, where we help healthcare practitioners in private practice keep true to their purpose and build a life of mastery by providing the knowledge, skills, and tools to bring their dreams to life. In this episode, we speak to Shelley Hall, a clinical psychologist based in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa, about her private practice and everything private practice management related. Morning, everyone, and welcome to today's show. We've got a very special guest with us today, Shelley Hall. She's a clinical psychologist that specializes in adult and child psychotherapy, as well as brainwave recursive therapy. Um, looking forward to chatting to her and decide, discovering a little bit more about what being a clinical psychologist is. Hi, Shelley. Welcome to the show. Good morning to everybody. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Shelley, just could you give us just a little bit of background, you know, for our viewers and listeners? You know, what is a clinical psychologist? How do you guys differ from other psychologists? That's is a little bit of a difficult question to answer at the moment. There has been some disagreements around scopes of practice. Um, so it's sort of based on competency, what you've done in your training, and how, what sort of supervision you've had. But traditionally, in the way I was trained, and, and most people of my age group, I believe, you, as a clinical psychologist, you have to spend at least six months of your internship year working in a mental hospital. So our focus is mostly on actual mental illness, working in, in hospitals, working in private practices, with that focus on mental illnesses, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make a little bit of sense. So when you say mental illnesses, not to your normal, you know, bereavement counseling or so much couples counseling, but more that systemic, you know, maybe bipolar, um, possibly anorexia, um, you know, more your of your depression. clinical. Yes, post-traumatic okay. stress disorders or when grief becomes complicated, that that's mostly where our training and focus is. And we can also find ourselves working in courts as expert witnesses with those sort of issues. All right. So there is a big, there is, in theory, a really big difference between a clinical psychologist and perhaps a counseling yes. psychologist. Um, yes. You'd be more long term with your patients as a clinical psychologist, one would assume, with the more intringent mental illnesses as opposed to you know, somebody needing a little bit of a guidance and assistance to kind of get through what they're dealing with currently. Yes, because our focus is a lot on diagnosis, conceptualizing somebody to diagnose that mental illness and then teach them the skills and, and work with it. Okay. So, you know, let's be fair, being a psychologist is definitely in whoever I've spoken to has also kind of said it's very much of a calling. So what made you decide to go into the psychological field? Pure fascination. Um, I come from a family of teachers and I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't really want to be a teacher. So I went off to university, started doing psychology in my undergrad, and I just wanted more. And then I was fortunate enough, I applied for the master's program to be accepted into master's and then into clinical. Because in those days, they took very few people into the clinical programs. So it was just, yeah, a fascination that really, really grew. And it's definitely a passion. Well, that's absolutely amazing to hear that, you know, coming from a family of everybody going into teaching, that you kind of went in that different 
direction. Were there any maybe role models or mentors that you maybe had in your development years that kind of pushed you towards the psychological field or was that purely from getting to university and discovering the vast range of (laughs) life out there? Um, my life was quite impacted from a young age. Uh, I lost my father when I was about nine, just very, very suddenly. He had an aneurysm of the aorta. So it was just a sudden death that knocked all of us. And I think uh, I wouldn't really say I've had any role models. I've always had to be quite independent from a young age. So I think that just sort of drew me to the profession, um, just wanting to be able to support other people who go through major traumas in their life, because it is, it's completely life-changing. So I think it did pretty much grow from that. Yeah, it's, it is, you know, it's amazing how a single life event as a youngster can actually kind of direct the field that you wind up going into. I mean, I remember at a young age as well, um, something happened with my folks and suddenly my sister and I were both moved out of South Africa to Zim to go and stay with family there. And, you know, I, I remember kind of going, well, when I grow up, I don't ever want that to have to happen to anybody. (laughs) You know, you kind of try and find fields where, you know, you know you're not going to ruffle any feathers. So I could definitely see how a large life event as a child kind of directs you to where you want to go as an adult or points you into almost a direction there. So you've been in private practice now, um, so you're no longer working in a state facility or in your comserve. How long have you been in private practice? It's a little bit of a story again, because <laughs> I actually, I finished my training and I went into private practice for a year, because as clinical psychologists, we have to work for the government for a year, community service. So I did mine in Guelazan Hospital, which is a, a local hospital. And then I was in private practice with a colleague for, I think, two years. And we, my husband and I decided we wanted out of South Africa, we wanted a different worldview. So we actually went to Jamaica based on his qualifications as a farmer. Hmm. So we were over there for about almost 10 years. Um, and then we moved back to South Africa. So we've been back for about six years now. So I had to start my practice over from, from scratch. <laughs> Oh, that must have been. So, you know, when you were in Jamaica, were you at least still able to practice in Jamaica or did you kind of spend 10 years living on the farm? I had stamped my passport that I was not allowed to be employed. But what I did to keep myself current is I actually joined their board because at that stage, anybody could call themselves a psychologist to work in the fields. You can imagine the horrors we were seeing. So I joined their psychology board as their secretary for a few years. And we managed, just after I left, they managed to get it through with the government that you actually had to have specific qualifications. And then I did some voluntary work with mustard seed organizations, actually a Catholic organization. And I ended up teaching. (laughs) I ended up teaching at a school as well. So the thing you didn't want to do is growing up, you wound up doing, oh, well, you know. Life's interesting. I'm glad because it was, yeah, it's helped me a lot. You know, when I've got to assess children and things like that, it actually helped me quite a lot to have that teacher's perspective. It's it's been quite a journey. (laughs) I can only imagine that, you know, having that teacher's perspective definitely has to help when dealing with youngsters because, you know, as a teacher, you've got 20, 30, 40 kids in a class and every one of them has their own little personality and you've got to kind of find a way to 
manage them all and get them to where you need to be. So, you know, whilst you were in Jamaica, obviously on the board, you were sitting, helping set up, you know, rules and regulations to make sure that, you know, not every Tom, Dick and Harry could say, well, I can help you with your, yeah. you know, your troubles and so on. I can, you know, because that's got to be absolutely scary if somebody with no scary. qualification is trying to guide somebody with a mental illness. And I think it's become even worse these days. You know, you see all these little courses popping up via Facebook where you can just go and do some sort of counseling course and call yourself a counselor. And it's it's really, there's a reason why we need to have the minimum of a master's degree to be able to study these things in depth. It's a massive responsibility. So I'm not yeah. quite sure why people want to just jump into it after a short course because it's quite complicated. Yeah, and I can only imagine, I mean, if you're dealing with somebody with, entrenched issues you know a six-week short course on Facebook is definitely not going to give you the experience knowledge or even just the know-how of how to help this person so effectively you could actually be causing a lot more damage um you know with that in mind I would say, you know, if somebody is in a position where they are looking for help, just to do a little bit of research and make sure that whoever you've reached out to is actually officially qualified through a university as opposed to just some random little institute online. You can also check if someone is registered with the Health Professions Council of South Africa, HPCSA because a registered counsellor, psychologist should be. It's very, very important. And then obviously, you know, everyone has their own personality. And even if someone is registered, you go for one or two sessions and you see if this is somebody you can work with. And equally, the professional should be professional. And if they feel it's not working, they should tell you and then help you to find someone who is more suited to your needs. The relationship is so, so important. Yeah, because it's not a short-term thing and you've got to build and develop trust. I mean, you're not, you know, if somebody's battling with something, you're not going to open up to somebody you feel uncomfortable with or maybe, you know, so yeah, that does make a lot of sense that, you know, feel the situation out. And if you don't feel comfortable, you know, find somebody that you might feel a little bit more comfortable with and actually say so, so that, yeah. Okay, so coming back to South Africa after being in Jamaica and having to rebuild again, were there any challenges that you kind of faced having to literally start from ground up again? Yes, it was quite difficult, you know, trying to get my head back around things like medical aids and ICD-10 codes and just getting your name out again was quite hard. I can remember I printed a bunch of business cards and I went around to all the doctors and very few referrals came in. So it's been very, very much realizing it's actually word of mouth and having good collegial relationships and just running a business because that's something that our training does not cover. And essentially, you're actually running a small business. So all of these things kind of thrown at me and trying to figure out the best ways, the most cost-efficient ways of running things and finding an office space and all of that. But it's actually, it's been really exciting. I've really enjoyed it. I must admit, I love the fact that you actually mentioned that, you know, when you go into private practice, you are actually running a small business. You know, the amount of people we speak to that go, well, you know, I'm a therapist. 
okay, but you work for yourself. Yes, but I'm just a therapist. And you kind of got to go, okay, but there's this whole business that you have to run. There's, you know, depending on the size of it, there's staff, there's legal things you've got to consider, there's financials, there's tax, there's (laughs) exactly. And, you know, it's amazing just from our perspective when you realize that in all the years studying, there's not even one course or one module in university to prepare practitioners for one day you might want to go into private practice. So here's, you know, basic business understanding. Um, So, yeah, I find it's a big, it's a big step for somebody going into private practice. And I think it's very important that you do know that it's running a business and, you know, with that in mind, I mean, there's a lot of administrative things that you need to manage when running a business. Do you have an assistant helping you or did you get eventually get in an assistant when you started your practice? Initially, I, I didn't. I did everything myself, which I think is very valuable because you really then learn um, and get to know your business from, from all aspects. So last year, I had somebody join me just before lockdown. I took on a lovely young lady. We had no experience at all and she's had to learn all the ropes with me and we're slowly slowly getting there and that's been a big big help because I do also have two young girls of my own so it's just not having to come home in the evening and still have to do your billing and follow up with the business side of things it's so nice yeah look definitely it's one of the things that I've we've had a lot of conversations with people about you know where a lot of practitioners have actually said, you know, had they had someone or something to help them starting out, it would have been really, really great. And that the ideal would be to get to the point where they have one, maybe two assistants, because it means that when you finish at the end of the day, you can actually go home and spend time with a family instead of going home, rushing through bath time, bedtime, dinner time, and then still having to invoice. I mean, I'll never forget, we brought on a client and she actually said, you know, the biggest reason she signed up for the managed service was because she was invoicing and doing her admin at half past 11 at night, you know, so after waking up, getting kids, you know, ready for school, getting kids to school, working for eight hours, coming home, making dinner, trying to spend time with family, half past 11 hours of shame, you know. And you could actually see that relief of going, okay, I have somebody who can do some of this, which means when I get home, I can actually spend time with my family, you know, and I can switch work off. And I think that's so important. The big thing. And also we can't answer our phone when we're with a client. Yeah. Some people don't seem to understand that they get quite irate. <laughs> so it's lovely to have somebody who can do all of those things. Or if you're in a Zoom session and somebody can't get on, that your receptionist can assist you with that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's those small things that you don't think about when you begin. And as you go, you know, all those little small things just start making life seem so much more difficult. All right. So if somebody was, sorry, if somebody was in a position where they were feeling a little bit down or so on, when would be, in your opinion, the time to start actually reaching out to a clinical psychologist? Um, you know, at what point, at some point, people start thinking, you know, maybe I need to speak to somebody. More often than not, though, I find that people tend to reach out when the wheels have fallen off the bus. 
You know, when would yes, you kind yeah. of start suggesting that a person maybe takes that first step to go and maybe I just need to have chat to somebody? Yeah, so right. Often people come when things are very, very broken and it's much harder to fix. You know, we're not all happy all the time. That's impossible. We do all go through moments of sadness. When a trauma, something happens, whether it's a loss or something like a hijacking, you do expect a few nights of disturbed sleep, feeling unsafe. All of that is normal. But when things start to persist, like if you've had a sad mood or if you had a trauma and those symptoms are increasing after, say, two weeks, then it's worthwhile just checking in. Even if it's just for one session, just to find out what can I expect? How should this progress? What are some things I can try to see if I can relieve these symptoms on my own? Um, it's, it's usually a good idea if you've been trying for two weeks and things are just not getting any better. And of course, the minute you start feeling I actually don't want to be here anymore. I wouldn't mind if tomorrow morning I just didn't wake up. That's a massive red flag. Then you know. Then it's, I wouldn't even wait the two weeks. Then you know you need to really try and see somebody quite urgently. Uh, yeah, you know, um, it's definitely, I agree with you there. If you are feeling that I just can't carry on anymore or I actually wouldn't mind if I reach out, you know, even if it is just for one or two sessions, just to kind of assist, you know, I think so many people tend to think, you know, if I start seeing a therapist, it's going to be years in therapy. Is that, is that necessarily the case? Or, you know, could it be five or six sessions and maybe every now and then just a maintenance visit, you know, a pop in and Yes, I think you know, most psychologists, we don't want to keep our patients sick, trapped in therapy forever. We're all very, very aware of financial constraints. So most of us, when you come for the first time, we're going to sit there. People always go, why must I go back into the history? But we must, because we like to conceptualize. We like to see where you've come from, where you are at the moment, get a really good concept of what you're needing. So we can say to you, and it's very hard to say whether it's going to be two sessions, 10 sessions, because things can organically kind of come out in therapy. But generally, we want to keep you there, get you well again as quickly as possible, give you the skills so you can get on with it. If we need to refer, refer you to a psychiatrist. We're not allowed to prescribe for some medication if we feel there's a diagnosis and a reason or to a neurologist if we feel there could be an underlying condition causing something. But our aim is to get you well again, to get you back out there. We don't want to have you lying on the couch for years and years and years if possible. You know what, that is actually so refreshing to hear because I think, you know, and let's be fair, media has definitely played a very big role in this. I mean, if you watch anything, a person's been in therapy for 10 years kind of case. And it's nice to actually hear from a professional that that's not actually the aim. The aim is to get you back up on your feet and get you back out there and you know, yes, that time frame could differ. For some people, it could be a few sessions. For some people, it could be a bit longer. But the goal is to get you back out there where you're not sitting on the couch for an hour a week, every week for 10 years. Yeah. But where, and you I know, you have that safe sorry. space that if something goes wrong, that you can at least come back. Yes. I think we should also just qualify that, you know, if you had something like, 
a bipolar disorder or a really, really severe depression, then it might be that you would be checking in more often. And then we do start spacing it out so that you are coming, like, say, once a month and then every three months and then every six months. And with those sort of disorders, you do kind of go backwards and forwards, especially if you're not well maintained on your medications, then you might need to come for a period of more intensive therapy again. But generally, that is the aim to try and get somebody stable, to give them the skills so they rely on us less and less and less and less. Yeah, so, but that's actually an amazing point. Even somebody with something like bipolar is that ultimately you guys want to reach a point where it's being maintained and, you know, you'd be able to split those sessions out a little bit more, but are there in case there is a manic dip or a depressive dip and you need to have those, you know, a few more intensive sessions and then you start. So although you might be seeing a therapist for years, it's not necessarily I'm seeing somebody twice a week, every week for the rest of my life. There is those times where, you know, I'm checking in once every couple of months on, you know, this is where I am. This is how I'm doing. Um, you know, so I think that's very important for people to understand that, yes, you might have an illness that could take that's it's lifelong. And every now and then you are going to need some sort of maintenance, but that doesn't mean that it's daily, weekly, or monthly maintenance. It could just be that, you know, you need to stop in every now and then, but you are going to have times where you're going to need that really intensive maintenance just to balance you back out again. Yes. I think people can understand it if you're talking about diabetes or HIV, you know, then people seem to understand it, but that is really a similar kind of thing. Sometimes the medications or things don't go right. So you need to come back for a little bit more. That's how it should be. I think that's how it should be with most things, you know, um, that you do have that follow-up, that check-in, that, you know, how things going. Uh, you know, even in your work life, you tend to have those. I mean, that's what performance review meetings are and one-to-ones with team it's leaders. It's, it's it's just that check-in, that how are you doing? Okay, cool. Everything's hundreds. We carry on. Or, hmm, there's a bit of a problem here. Let's meet again next week and just see where we're going. Um, Anything else that you would like to let people know from a clinical psychologist's perspective? I think just on that point, I actually wrote an article on my LinkedIn profile a little while ago, is people tend to come when they are in crisis. And I find it quite interesting. You know, we want to exercise, we want to do mindfulness, we want to do all of these things. And then people will say, oh, you know, I'm writing exams or I'm so pressurized at the moment. I can't come to the exercise class or I can't make my therapy this month. And that's really interesting. Why would you drop the healthy habits that are maintaining your physical and mental health when you're under more stress? That is when we should actually increase those habits, really, not decrease them. And I think that's something I'd really like everybody to think about. Yeah, you know. That's actually so true. And I'm just thinking about it now because I'm definitely guilty of that. You know, if I've got a big deadline looming or so on, then, you know, I cancel the gym for the week. And I must admit, that, you know, I feel, I feel really bad, you know, when I go back because I, it's a slog to get, to get dressed and go to the gym. But I always feel better when I walk out of the gym. And yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, why give up the 45 minutes at the gym? I mean, how much difference is that actually going to make? You know, but maybe take 
an extra day at the gym just to kind of get that endorphin release to push through the pressure. That's a really, really interesting thing. You know, we give up the healthy and we revert to the, you know, I've had a bad day, let me go and have a beer instead of, you know, I've had a bad day, let me go to the gym. Put down the running shoes to increase your stress time. <laughs> Doesn't make sense, but we, we all tend to do that. Yeah, it's human nature. So just on that note, guys, yeah, when you are in a pressure situation or so on, rather than giving up the healthy, maybe just increase it a little bit to help release the endorphins needed to just get through that pressurized time. Um, and yeah, if you are seeing a therapist, don't cancel an appointment because you've got a, a deadline, you know, maybe move the appointment earlier or add in an additional appointment and bounce an idea, some ideas, but don't put your health on the back burner for something else. Oh, that, Shelley, it was absolutely amazing to just get to understand a little bit more about being a clinical psychologist and some of the adventures you've been on in your role as a clinical psychologist. I mean, that's absolutely phenomenal. I don't know too many people who have made the move to Jamaica, but just to understand a little bit more about how that worked was phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah, it was an, a real adventure. <laughs> it's fantastic to leave your country and see it through a diff different set of eyes as well. I'm very glad we did come back. It's actually an interesting one. You know, I hear that so often from people who have come back is that it was amazing to go, but, you know, coming home was just so much more amazing. Home. You just appreciate it more, you know, so it's always nice to know that for whatever good and bad there is out there, you know, at the end of the day, home is home. It really is. <laughs> Hey everyone, thanks for listening. As always, stay tuned and we'll speak to you in the next episode.